I'm like, hey man, we're gonna take a wave, like grab a couple breaths. And there wasn't enough time for it to register, even though you could see it. It was just like, yeah. it was just kind of surreal. So I remember the last thing I saw, I literally tried to just clear out, like yeah, get to where our boards away. weren't gonna tangle. And I kind of like popped to where I was standing on my board, looked back to dive off my board. And as I look back, he's still sitting. <laughs> That's Zach Wormhout recounting a big wave beating during the filming of the Chasing Mavericks movie, one of six heavy water stories from around the world today on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. Today we have a compilation of some of my favorite heavy water stories from past guests on the podcast. Now these stories include things like injuries at sea, insane storms and conditions, big waves, and take place from the Bering Sea to Loch Ness, Mexico, and beyond. Each story is short, intense, and helps remind us of what the ocean can serve up when we're least expecting it. Now I'd love to hear your suggestions for the next compilation of stories, so please hit me up through social or email at josh at thisoceanlife.tv and let me know what you'd like to hear next for our stories. Now, if you like what you hear today, or even if you don't, take a minute and commit to removing one common type of plastic from your daily life. A straw, bottled water, plastic bags, there's tons to choose from, and our grandkids who love the ocean way in the future will thank you for it. So now, I hope you enjoy these heavy water stories, and let's get into them. First heavy water stories with Christopher Hearn, who's a master mariner up in Newfoundland. Now, Chris has spent his entire life at sea, not just working on boats in the cold and the wet, but piloting boats, commanding boats, big boats like drilling rigs and container ships, like multi-hundred foot type vessels. And today, Chris is an advisor to the Disasters at Sea television show brought to us by the Smithsonian Channel. And what Chris does is he advises them on recreating these gnarly disasters at sea. And so in this segment here, Chris takes us through one of the gnarliest stretches of water that he's ever been in. Think The Perfect Storm, remember that movie? Well, he was basically in it for three weeks, going nowhere on a giant ship, just basically trying to hold position. It's a heavy story and from a great guy, a lot of fun. Check it out. You, I'm, I'm guessing you've been pretty much all over the world and, and seen a lot of different water. So after and, and doing a lot of different, uh, you know, running a lot of different operations and different activities. So after all of that uh, and seeing, I'm guessing, some pretty heavy water, some pretty weird things, some pretty gnarly experiences. Is there a stretch of water or an area of the oceans where you would be most hesitant to go back to, you know, cause you know, cause, cause <laughs> just by sheer nature of whatever it is, the currents, the tides, the, the, the storms that pop up. I mean, is there, is there an area that's you, you would be most hesitant to jump back into? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, I would say the, when you're approaching the Grand Banks off Newfoundland, so the mid Atlantic yeah. um, yeah. or the North, the Northern part of the mid Atlantic, I had an experience one time coming across, um, near the end of my seagoing days of two of the most intense storms that collided, came together into one giant one. Wow. And we were, uh, we were at a better part of almost 20 days. Uh, we just, I just was slowed down to a knot, a knot and a half, just doing nothing wow. but my bow into really heavy seas, the big seas, big waves, 
and no visibility. All we could do was just slow down and just, you know, ride out the storm as long as we could. And it was, it was, you know, that, that has a cumulative fatiguing effect oh, yeah. uh, because nobody really sleeps and the ship is rolling and battering yeah. and there's no end of noise. And at nighttime, it's, it's just as bad or even worse at night because uh, when we're, when you're slowing down to that kind of speed, the ship is just barely at steerage. So yeah. by steerage, I mean, it's just, you're just barely able to keep the bow in the direction you want and you're trying to keep it in the direction of the waves. And, uh, occasionally, uh, you know, the, the the officers up on the bridge of the mates would lose track of where the waves were coming on, and you'd have some big wave strike oh. the ship and <laughs> roll all over the place. And so, yeah, that that northeastern part of the Atlantic is is bad for weather, and then you get you know tense periods of fog, which is what happens off Newfoundland, and you, you know you throw in that factor of glacial ice being in amongst yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it can be very nasty. Yeah, oh, that's heavy, man. I mean, 20 days of just basically, as you said, holding position just to yeah. keep the bow into the into the, the waves with no visibility. I mean, that must have been such a, a morale drainer of the crew, you know? I mean, that's, yeah. but that's part of it, too, right? Everybody that expects that's going to happen sooner or later to them in their career. It is. I mean, you know, if you're going to be at sea, you're going yeah. to experience that at some point, unless you're in very sheltered or coastal waters or especially deep sea or anything that's on outside the coast, off the coast. You're going to, at some point, you, you know, you're very lucky if you don't. I'd be surprised if you don't. But most often, eventually, you will, and you're, you're prepared for it. I mean, so you, you take the precautions, you take the steps, and you're, you're ready for it. No one wants to do it. Um, but that's it. Um, this is, you know, so for, if I was on a ship going from point A to point B and, you know, I'm watching the forecast and I'm getting updates on the weather and I'll adjust my course or I'll slow down and hopefully the weather will pass ahead of me or behind me or I'll yeah. avoid it by altering course. And sometimes that's it. It, you know, it, it just engulfs you or you're just, and all you can do is, is take your time and, you know, let the ship find her way through and, you know, just be careful and vigilant about everything. And that's how that goes. It, it's, it's interesting that you make the point because the the oil and gas operations that are here off the coast of Newfoundland occur in really heavy conditions. And oh, I, often, I often think about the fact that, you know, while I'm just traveling through an area of bad weather, yeah. uh, they're out in it. They stay there. I mean, the supply boats, yeah. they have to hang out and they've had some, they have some pretty rough nights. I got some friends who are on the anchor handlers and the platform supply boats and yeah. uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, it's heavy duty. They, oh, they put in some rough nights. <laughs> I can only imagine, man. <laughs> I can only imagine. All right. That's Chris Hearn from episode 65 talking about big, heavy water and a big, heavy boat. Now, along that thread, we're going to shift over to the Pacific now to another stretch of water similar, the Bering Sea. And this story is from a personal friend of mine, Jeff Denholm, who I serve and paddle with. This is a story of Jeff being at sea in the Bering Sea in big conditions under the deck in the back of the boat and having a massive, massive injury for everybody who knows him. He's called the one arm bandit. And here's a story of how Jeff at sea lost his arm. It's super heavy. It's kind of graphic. Uh, but if you know this guy, it hasn't slowed him down at all. Here we go. So, but I knew after a couple of years on, on the Bering Sea, I knew it was like too restricting and there was, I saw too much carnage and I was like, all right, yeah. I gotta get, make another move. Right. And, I, I wasn't looking at being a, uh, a mariner on the Bering Sea as a long-term proposition, sure. but I was super enamored with. I love the, I love the, 
fucking big seas and yeah. pounding and storms. Really? Yeah. And I worked a couple winters up there and it was oh. just like tough duty, but really rewarding wow. when you got off the boat. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> So I just kind of, from growing up, that salt yeah. my veins, and then, then yeah. happened to work on those lobster boats, and I get to Boston, met a guy, got a job on the ferry boats. Yeah. It was sort of, and I yeah. and I enjoyed it, and I stuck with it, right. and it turned out to be a semi-long-term yeah, yeah. thing. And then, you know, ultimately, and I was concerned about it because I'd seen so many statistics unfolding in front of my eyes on those boats the summer of 93, yeah. and you'd made inference to my arm. I was in the engine room. And working in very heavy seas, and I was very tired. And there was a piece of grating on the floor below to us, to the the metal bulkhead where we, everything's welded down. And there's drive shafts up, run from engines under that grating, and then connect and go up a floor above or out to the prop or drive system, depending on the configuration. Every room's different, but most of those engine rooms have spinning stuff that's dangerous. Yeah. And in this case, we were in heavy seas, um, August '93. And the boat got pounded. I got kicked off the primary drive and fell backwards and landed on my arm on a drive shaft spinning 2,000 RPMs. And it hooked my triceps, sucked my arm in, wrapped my arm around oh my God. several times, pulled my arm out of shoulder, broke my neck, severed my brachial artery. I was the EMT on the boat. So I didn't have any clamp that. I got through it, survived, you know, eight. 21 hours before I got to the hospital. You clamped it yourself, correct? Well, with the help of a friend, but it was there. I was right. screaming at him like, you we got to stop you this. You reached in, didn't you, and pulled I, Well, artery? we put it, it was, the arm was rolled open. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah. And I, you know, there was flesh exposed and those things can retract. They can release from the fascia, like a, an artery like that. If it releases from the yeah. fascia connecting at the muscle tissue, it'll retract inside your body. You can't grab it. You right. bleed out. So it was on a chunk of my arm, and we just clamped that whole chunk of the arm with a shirt and then clamped down on it with a pair of pliers temporarily. Yeah. Because my arm was out of shoulder, we could actually get a belt around it and squeeze because I was still wrapped up, and they had to take the shaft apart to get me out. And we're getting pounded, right? We're in an engine room with a primary drive engine the size of a VW bus, two feet of my screaming. Oh, my God, loud. Yeah, two of those in oh. the engine room because we're at sea. You can't stop the engine. We're going to get flipped, right? Boy. We're down three decks down in the belly of the boat Whoa. for hours. It took them two hours to disassemble that thing to get my arm out of it. Jesus. Oh, my goodness. And my friend carried me up to the wheelhouse, and we taped me down and got on the radio. And the one copter out of ADAC was busy, and so and the other one was in Kodiak or something. So they were, I had a long wait, and we had to steam to the lee of St. Paul and the Pribilof Islands and the yeah. Central Bering Sea. And middle of nowhere, basically. Middle of nowhere, blowing 50. And then he tracked me from there to a jet on, on St. Paul, and a jet to Sitka to get fuel. And a doctor came on board there to stabilize me. They tried to get me to Seattle a bit with some neurosurgeons that could rebuild me. But ultimately, the blood flow from my limb, which was still attached but mangled, had been limited for so long. The flesh was now toxic. So right. reattaching it means right. induction of toxins to your system. Yeah. Done. Wow. So no, they can't, can't do that. Yeah. So it was gone. Yeah. So, so take us through that. So you're, <laughs> you get back, you land in Seattle. Is that where, that's where. They landed at Boeing airstrip instead of SeaTac because Boeing was closer to the hospital. I landed in Paul Allen's friggin'. No way. His yeah. private strip there. Yeah. So, so you go through all this and at some point the doctor comes in and says, Hey, here's the deal. We can reattach. We can try to do this, but it's septic and it's going to have some problems. So you're basically, Jeff. Bro, I got wheeled in after 21 hours of survival. 
with 30% of my blood gone, yeah. with massive trauma to my body. I was semi-conscious in a delirious state. The fact that I, I don't remember the conversation, the doctors were amazed that I had the strength yeah, to still be alive. Wow. Never mind conversing. My parents flew from Maine, beat me there by like eight hours because I called them from the sat phone on the boat oh, wow. and told them the situation and said, my mom and I, we talked and my dad came out and said, I don't think I'm going to make it. Yeah, yeah, heavy. Knowing what I have to get through yeah. to get, uh, yeah. this is going to be yeah. sketch. So, so take us through, I mean, as an active young guy who was just charging, you know, fishing, doing all kinds of Mountain stuff. Mountain biking, skiing. Yeah, all right. that. And all of a sudden, you're, the realization sinks in that you don't have a right arm anymore. Like, that's a heavy thing. Like, what was... You know what the first thing I thought about? Huh. How am I going to fucking surf? Yeah, really. Because I met... And this ties into it. I first started surfing. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Does it get any heavier than that? I, I, I don't know. Uh, that was Jeff Denholm from episode 32 for... For more from that guy, check out that episode. It's pretty good. Now, while we're talking about injuries, let's shift over to Maria Fernanda. I just had her on the podcast, oh, geez, at the time of this recording, just a few weeks back. Maria uh, swims in heavy surf. She's a surf photographer. And sometimes she's in the back of a ski. Other times she's in the water. And this story here is one day out at Puerto Escondido, which is arguably one of the heaviest shore breaks in the world, uh, taking photos, trying to make her way back into the shore break and having basically her leg almost torn in half. It's a heavy story, but she's an awesome gal. Check it out. So how, how did you break your leg? Were you in the water when that happened? Yeah, I was in Porto and um, it was just 2017 because actually it's been the best year for me at least. I've taken the best photos, the photos that I've loved and my favorite photos. It was just like really good clean big swells with not much current so I, i've it was the best summer but i remember two days before i got pounded and i actually lost my camera not because i wanted but because uh, you know a wave um broke on me and it broke the leash so it like made me let go of the camera and then the leash broke and everything you know and then two days after and i got a pretty heavy pounding but i was fine you know and so they two days after another big swell hit, and I remember I don't know if you've ever been to Porto, but you when it's really big, you go out by the rocks, yeah, um, not straight up. And so I went out by the rocks, and then you swim for a little bit to go to the lineup. And so that day the current was gnarly. I remember I swam for like two hours, and I was exhausted. Sometimes I mean oh, I'm wow. a type or like Tahiti, and you can swim for four hours, five hours. You're the channel. You're you know. But this time, the two hours, I was done. You know, I was like, oh, I need to go back. So, but the waves were too big. Like, I think I'm going back to the rocks, you know, like I'm not going to swim just straight in because I don't want to get pounded again. And before, two days before, I had that big pounding. So I was like, eh, no, I'll just won't risk it. So I swam farther away from everyone. So no one saw me, you know, and that that didn't help. But, um, and I remember, oh, the waves are smaller over here. So I kind of timed it. I thought I timed it. <laughs> to swim in and then all of a sudden a huge wave came in and the problem with there is yeah waves are smaller but then it's more shallow you know it's oh. so shallow like when it breaks you can feel the sand so right. i remember it's just like a wave came out of nowhere and like oh gosh and you have like a second or two to think what to do so i was like okay cannot swim in not swim out because there's you know i'm not gonna go anywhere <laughs> not enough time and then if i go down i think the wave will ping me to the you know sand oh, so what i did i thought it was smart you know i was like i'll just curl up in a bowl hold my camera you know in my belly and um 
I thought about covering my nose. I don't know why I did instead of my legs. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know how long I was going to be underwater. So I was like, I want to save my, you know, my breath as long as I can. But that didn't help because the wave broke almost like a meter in front of me. Yeah. So it was like an explosion, you know. So I like I was all curled up with all the strength that I had, and it like opened my arms oh. um, and my legs. And so with the fins, I just remember my knee going to the side and it popped. Oh. You know, oh. it was kind of yeah, it was crazy. Um, so I remember that I was like, okay, great. Now I have one arm, one yeah. leg. Right. You know, oh. and, there, and there was two more waves coming. So I remember I just hold my knee you know the knee that was broken with my arm so it wouldn't move because i could feel it like that you know gnarly yeah and i was like okay i just i prayed again i was like i just don't want to hit the rocks because i was getting closer to the rocks and so that was like my fear oh, getting smashed on the rocks and i remember when i was getting close to the sand i like asked for help i was waving there were some tourists uh, going by i was like help help you know and they thought i was Saying hi, I guess. <laughs> 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 I was so you know, like help! I'm not saying hi. I need help. <laughs> so they just said hi and kept walking. I was like, great, I'm on, you know, on my own. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> so I literally just like crawled up the sand at the end. You yep. know, I was like okay, I'm out. You know, I'm safe. <laughs> I did not get smashed in the rocks. By that time, I like I remember I put up, you know, I tried to stand and started like hopping <laughs> to my hotel, which was a kilometer or so. Oh, jeez! And I remember some people are like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "No, I think I broke my knee." But at the same time, I I'm not very dramatic when I hurt myself, and so I I think they summoned and was like, "Oh, she's fine." So they didn't offer help. I was like, "Okay, they're not offering help. Screw them. I can do this by myself." <laughs> oh, jeez! You just went took yourself to the hospital. <laughs> I, I jumped all the way to my hotel and so by the time i got to my hotel my friends that know me they're like you're hurt i was like yep it hurts a lot <laughs> so i remember that time i was like at the time that i got there like the adrenaline got me to that point but yeah. by the time i got there yep. i it's so weird i've never felt that i feel like something like just went down my body and then i could feel the pain i was like Wow. The worst pain I've been in my entire life. And I almost fell, you know, because I couldn't walk anymore. Like yeah. I used all my adrenaline. I was I was safe there, but I couldn't walk anymore. So I was like, let's go take you to the hospital. They had to, you know, give me some uh, pills for the pain and stuff. And they took me to the hospital. And yeah, after that, it was like my summer was over. I had to get surgery. You know, it was ACL, MCL, meniscus, yeah. everything, you know, reconstructed and everything. So it was two months of being, you know, <laughs> no walking, just laying down super depressed. I was like, what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, um, you, just, you know, part of the process, you learn how to walk again, and, right. you know, recovery and PT. It was horrible. I just remember the first six months. It was like, Oh, this is so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is so gnarly. I and mean, you are so gnarly for doing that. Okay. That was Maria Fernanda episode one oh one. Fortunately, as you heard, she recovered from that and she's out charging, uh, biggest bigger waves than ever right now with her for camera in hand now we're going to shift over to another big wave story with a, another good friend of mine who i get into all kinds of weird stuff in the ocean with mr zach wormhout he's one of the guys who's been in every competition ever held at mavericks he's been there forever uh you name it in the water this guy's doing it charges uh this story is when he was in a part of the cast of chasing mavericks the movie right based on jay moriarty's like back in I'm going to get the date wrong. I thought it was 
2012 ish. Uh, I had a few days out there with him watching this go down. It was pretty amazing. Uh, but he, part of his character was to work with Frosty, right? Frosty was Jay's mentor. Frosty was played by Gerard Butler, right? We all know him, 300. He's a stud. He's in all kinds of movies. Well, he did a lot of scenes in the water. He wasn't surfing, but he was out there in a wetsuit on a big wave gun. And this is a tale of a day when they were just getting some B-roll. There were some waves, but they weren't supposed to be surfing. They were supposed to kind of stay on the shoulder. But as you'll hear, the wave swung wide and you can you can guess what happened. It's a great story. And again, everybody was okay, but it's a pretty hairy one. Let's check it out. And also there was a movie filmed, Chasing Mavericks, the story of basically Jay Moriarty, who's also here from Santa Cruz. And you were one of the guys, you have a speaking part in that movie. Um, and it I'm was sorry. cool. I mean, I was up there with you a little bit and saw some of it go down. It was pretty neat. And there was, you know, the, the big climactic surf scene at the end. That was a pretty good day. And, you know, you guys got a lot of great waves. But there's also a neat twist to this, which is the star of the show, Gerard Butler, was basically part of your task, a part of your job for the movie was to help him become a pseudo surfer for a few months during the filming. You take him out and take him paddling. But tell the story <laughs> of when you guys were shooting film, I believe, on the side, there was waves. Yeah. And you were getting some some roll, you know, and you and the, the was the mag four? It was a Mag 3. Mag 3. Yeah. Greg Long, Peter Mell, and myself. That's right. And then you had Gerard Butler. And all of a sudden, what, a set swings wide, and you guys are out there? It, what happens? Yeah, no, I mean, we got <laughs> clipped, basically. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say about him is that, like, for some reason, I think people almost have this tendency to write him off, or yeah. I don't know why that, I mean, anyway, he's a legit guy, a very sincere guy he's moving a million miles per second but he's a nice guy and he thought about what he was trying to do in his role in that movie in an authentic way yeah. and had respect for the story of jay and jay and mavericks you know he got a little wild wanting to do some toe-ins when he probably shouldn't have <laughs> um, but you know to his credit yeah. he, he actually pulled he, those off pretty good so he towed in too he towed into a couple, wow. yeah. Yeah, Good I mean, for the him whole for towing. having the balls to do that. The guy who doesn't Yeah, surf. I mean, yeah. he probably could have easily just had somebody running stunt double for him. I mean, yep. they had guys that looked just like him. Yeah. Um, but who could surf? And uh, I think Dan Malloy did some really nice work yeah. on that front. <laughs> His hair looked great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we were sitting on the inside. Um, all of the production people are very concerned when he's in the water. You know, it's yeah. on high alert for right. all systems. Huge water safety. Kerry Smith uh, yeah. running um, <laughs> back up through the Pillar Point Harbor yeah. patrol. Like spotters on the cliff looking for oh, yeah. sets. Oh, yeah, the whole deal. exactly. So we actually, I think that's what happened was there was a jet ski kind of bias. It was, if I have it right, Greg Long and myself and Gerard sitting kind of inside mass. We wouldn't sit there, but there wasn't really any ways. There was supposed to be, but it yeah. didn't show up. But so there kind of could have been, but there really hadn't been any. And so we were sitting where you wouldn't sit typically inside and um, everything was kind of just chill. Yeah. We were talking and I think they were just like getting whatever they call it, you know, B-roll yeah, shots, background right. and this and that. And a ski was going by and I heard the spotter from the cliffs voice. I knew the guy 
come over the radio of the guy on the ski saying there's a set, like set outside or something like that. And the ski just kept going like the other oh, way. And no like, way. I don't know if he just was already checking out or exactly how it went down. But next thing I know, you know, it wasn't like a huge wave, but it was like a 14 foot wave that was basically going to go top to bottom. Right. Right on. You know, you. 20 feet in front of us. And, <laughs> and Jer- Jerry's sitting on his board facing kind of sideways to the wave. If you can picture straddling your board sideways. I mean, it's not going to make a difference when you yeah, get it doesn't matter. rolled. But, you know, most surfers would be facing the wave, either paddling towards it or down and paddling to the side. But you wouldn't just be straddling your board sideways. So, and he was actually looking in. I'm like, hey, man, we're going to take a wave, like grab a couple breaths. And it just, there wasn't enough time for it to register, even though you could see it. It was just like, it was just kind of surreal. So I remember the last thing I saw, I literally tried to just clear out, like get get to where our boards weren't gonna tangle. And I kind of like popped to where I was standing on my board, looked back to dive off my board. And as I look back, he's still sitting on his board sideways with the nose kind (laughs) of in the air and the wave just, just just, mowed him down. Yeah, and it was a big deal. I mean- It was a um, hectic one, yeah. He didn't like, he, he went Stanford Medevac, full helivac. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't a medevac. He was oh. uh, in an ambulance, but I mean, oh, good. he was there for the night and um, he aspirated a bunch it was of water. A and pretty good beating, though. I remember you saying it was. Oh, it was real. Yeah. It was real. Yeah. It, well, there, was, there was all the Hollywood, you know, it didn't get used, none of that footage yeah. for anything, but that was the real part of that whole. Right. But you and Greg, being guys who that's, that's happened to you before, I remember you saying that was a pretty serious beating for guys who've been out there. Oh, and yeah. Let alone somebody yeah, I, like I Gerard who... I can imagine if you didn't yeah. surf or hadn't like gotten beat by a, a solid six-footer, what this would have felt like. It oh. would, But at the same time, that's what those beatdowns are kind of like. They're kind of like, they're bigger than you. Yeah. You don't even get a thought in the process. You know, <laughs> you no, are, no say in the matter. Yeah, you're just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's a classic. Okay, episode 15 with Zach Wormout right there recounting a tale of getting clipped by a big one and uh, fortunately being there to help Gerard Butler out. Now we're going to shift over to a totally different discipline in the water, different area of the world. This is prone paddling, actually in freshwater. So this guy, Nick Ayers, he's from the northern part of, of the UK. He's a international prone paddle competitor. He's been on the British national team. He's done the channel crossing from uh, UK to France, uh, and he's done some other insane stuff up there. Now, this one is not so much heavy in terms of big seas, but if you listen to the format of this long distance paddle race in really freezing cold water, where you're kind of, it's all pretty much every man for himself, you're jumping out, you're running with your board across fields and from one part of the water to the next and you hit the Loch Ness. It sounds like a pretty heavy one. And it's fun to listen to this guy who's really a real stud uh, in the prone paddle scene. Let's check it out. You're completely, you know, there on it. And especially on the second day when you're crossing Loch Ness, you know, um, we left and uh, it was again about 5.30 or 6 a.m. first light and it was howling like 35, 35 miles an hour winds. Oh, um, the right way, so like where you're going. Yeah, or the right, yeah, yeah. Oh, luckily, downwind. Cool. Um, so we were like, I was, I was so excited for the whole event. I was like, oh, this is gonna be good. It's gonna be downwind all the time. Yeah. First day it was like pan flat, no help. Oh, and then, 
yeah, so I was just like, oh my god, yeah, I just hope for wind, and then yeah, woke up and heard the wind, and I was like, oh, we're on, here we go, (laughs) and um, and yeah, it was like about two foot, two foot swells coming through, um, mid lock, and uh, it was insane. It was just like paddle, 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 catch a runner, you know, keep on that runner. Yeah, I mean the OC one guy. He was just oh, zooming, gone. you know. Yeah, he was. He he even said like he was a good friend of mine, John, and he was like, a couple of strokes. He was on a wave, and he was like taking pictures, having a oh yeah, you He's know, laughing. banana. Yeah, yeah. And then there's <laughs> me, like, and the prone guys. You know, it, it, like when you're doing a downwind, you can't really stop. You know, you can't yeah. stop at all. And my um, my drink c- uh, cradle snapped on like about two or three K in. Oh no. Cause I was going down these faces and then yeah. it was just sort of like nose diving and then, um, like coming back up Yeah, and it just took my bottle straight off. Oh no. So I had a reserve in my, in my backpack that I took with me, like a tiny little backpack. And, and I was at the point where I was like, I could reach in, I could grab it, but I was like, I don't want to fall off because yeah. the water is like <laughs> seven degrees oh, Celsius. God, is it really? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, I could stop and like sit up and grab a drink, but I was like, I don't want to be freezing cold, so I just oh, carry on. And just kept going. So I did about 35Ks with no drink, no, no way. food, no fluids, nothing. Dude, that's gnarly. So that's, I mean, yeah. I just I just converted that. That's 21 miles downwind yeah. with, you said, 35 mm. knot winds, give or take. Yeah. Uh, and then just to have no nutrition in yeah. water, man, that's, yeah. that's burly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's when you're out stupid, there, but... is there like a support boat? Or, I mean, no. are you just basically, mm. you're, all, you're solo. You're solo, and, yeah. and Loch Ness is a huge stretch of water. You know, yeah. it's, it's 35k long, and then about two miles wide. Yeah. Um. So you're, you can like at one point I was sort of mid lock, and they said sort of either keep keep to the left, don't go sort of 100 meters out. But the organisers are like saying, we know that as soon as we you know blow the horn, you're going to go wherever you want. Yeah. Um. So yeah, kind of you know just go for it, and um. And that's where obviously the biggest swells are in the middle. So right. I was like straight to the middle and going down. And um, yeah, those points where you, I looked around and I could just see, you know, in the on the horizon a, a stand-up paddleboarder. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and there's this one guy. Um, so you have to wear a leash for you um, for the safety as well. So you have to yep. wear a leash. And one guy on the stand-up, he. He came off his board and his leash snapped. Oh! And he tried. He tried swimming after his board, and he couldn't get it. He just couldn't catch it. No way! And it was just going. And um, luckily, one other stand-up paddleboarder saw him, um, paddled over to him, got him onto the board, and um, raised the alarm to say we need because they were mid-lock, so there's no way that they were going to get across. Yeah. And wow. so they called called for help, and they, the lifeboat came flying up, and it zoomed past me, and I was like. Oh, that's strange maybe they're training yeah you know? and, yeah and then the next thing the helicopter the coast guard helicopter came flying by oh wow and and so then i was like that doesn't seem too good and i was like it can't be any of us like we're pretty everyone's pretty you know confident here and it must be either mechanical or you know failure or something like that um and then when you reach the lock you're like is everyone here or is someone missing and then i oh no this one guy lost his board completely and had to be airlifted off for hypothermia so you know he was in the water for like five ten minutes and he was pretty cold you know oh yeah um, man so, so what what are you wearing uh like a three mil wetsuit four mil 
You um, yourself? I was you? wearing. Um, I was wearing um, uh, the Vicobi range. So like um, paddle pants. They're like yep. uh, thin neoprene. Yeah. Uh, trousers and about 1.5, I think. Okay. Um, and then the top on the first day it was really cold. Like I think in some of the pictures I was wearing, uh, I was wearing like a uh, a wind jacket, a windproof jacket. It was that cold, um, just to keep the wind and the spray off me. Yeah. Um, and then a woolly hat as well. So it's really bizarre. Like, you know, I've done a lot of paddling like in sort of Norfolk in just a pair of shorts, you know, and, yeah. and, and that, and then going to Loch Ness and having to be wrapped up, you know? Oh yeah. I get why you didn't want to fall off or get wet because mm. that stuff, yeah. you know, that's not neoprene. That's not a formula wetsuit. No. Yeah. You would no, have been exactly. freezing. Yeah. Freezing. Yeah. Wow. And like booties as well, you know, you got to wear booties. For and... sure. Yeah. That's <laughs> a cool race. That sounds burly, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, uh, there's a whole range of races. So there's three races yeah. um, on the East coast. Um... Okay. That was Nick Ayers from episode 23 hold down the prone paddle roots up there in the northern part of England. Now we shift over to, boy, kind of Indonesia, the northern part of Australia there with the, the Rice family. And the Rice family is a family of four from Australia who pretty much sold it all, jumped on a boat named Catalpa to check out and sail around uh, that part of the world. And here we speak uh, about an episode where they tried to get through this little famous passage called the Hole in the Wall. It's like this point between two parts of land that shaves off a ton of time on these on these voyages to that area but the current rips through there and things kind of got out of control and uh, it's fun to listen to how this family dealt with this pretty close call of their boat spinning in circles next to reefs uh and everything so here we go yeah so i mean there has we we've had a lot of storms we've had a lot of squalls as as such which is really strong winds that kind of come out of nowhere the scariest i mean there's two things that come to mind that have been pretty uh heart racing especially when you look over at the captain and someone who's really calm and collected looks really nervous that right. makes me nervous yeah always <laughs> <laughs> so one of those moments is at, uh, the top of australia coming it's called the hole in the wall so it's mm. up in the Northern Territory. Yeah. You, you've got to time it right. So the tide's really, really important and it races current like through the middle and there's there's not much like distance between the lands. So you're going through a passage and um, yeah, if you haven't seen our, our video on it, it's pretty good. We videoed the whole thing. Oh, cool. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's going through this narrow passage. So you have to time it. So you're going with the current, obviously. So we timed it wrong. Well, we didn't time it wrong. We got it wrong navionics on our gps told us the tide was a certain tide and it wasn't wow. we should have checked we should have done a lot of things but we did and we started heading through this narrow channel that we'd realized that the tide was going the opposite way when we we're already in there <laughs> we oh. kind of were a bit sussed and we're like no, no no we'll keep going and anyway long story short we just kept going kept going until we kind of pretty much was going backwards <laughs> and side of the boat i mean there was not much space Catalpa managed to do a 360 a couple of times, and that wow. was pretty pretty heart racing. Um, Lee had kind of he lost what he was trying to do is like we got to a certain point where like we're not going to get through this to the end. Like there's there's no way. Yeah, we're either going to have to just slowly going backwards, and that was the initial plan. And then that was also a little bit sketchy. And he found that there was some eddies in the water, so a lot of movement. Oh man! Um, and he, he turned and looked at me. He said, "I'm going to try and turn around." And I was like, oh, "Okay, you think you can?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
feel like you're the captain. Do what, do what you got to do. And I have so much trust in Lee. It's not funny. Like, I think he's Superman. Like, he can't yeah. go wrong. He cannot do anything wrong. He's, he's my hero. Right. And um, I was like, he knows I'm going to go for it. And he did. And he, he turned around, but we kept spinning. Oh, so man. We, so we span and the, the whole boat, he, he had no control. The rudder had obviously, like, because we're a full-length keel, so right. it's really hard. And he turned, and the whole boat went right around, so we're back facing the same way again. Oh, jeez. like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> it was just one of those moments. Like, Whoa. I looked at him, and I'm like, can we actually get out of here? And he's yeah. like, I don't know. And it was, yeah, it was one of those moments we thought maybe yeah. that day yep. could be the day Catalpa goes down. Wow. But, wow. Yeah. Could have gone either way. He so, thought, And so when you're yeah. – Spinning kind of semi out of control, how close were you to land or rocks or something that was going to be a problem for you? Were you like super close? Like, Yeah, I'm not real good with um, distances, but I would assume 40 meters. Yeah. I'm just checking with Lee. Yeah, yeah. So close enough where you guys, yeah, you guys were white knuckled, like just yeah. <laughs> praying to get through that. Wow. Yeah, so he actually turned, he managed to he tried again and he turned around and yeah, we, we shot right out and we went. You know what? I think we'll wait. <laughs> I think we'll wait until the <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That yeah. Well, I can only imagine that, you know, sailing through islands where there's passages and water changes and tides and waves, like when you're in the open ocean, again, and I have not done half as much or even a fraction of what you guys have done. But when you're in the open ocean, like you can see things coming a little bit. Yeah, storms pop up. But around different points of land, as you guys know, you know, currents change. They wrap, waves come in, tides influence the area. I can only imagine that like every nook and cranny, <laughs> you guys are always expecting and seeing just changes, you know. And it must, you must, when you're navigating through, I can only imagine how on your toes you have to be just to make sure you're safe, you know, with depth and just reefs and everything else. Yeah, for sure. Especially over here in Indonesia, there's a lot of movement in the water. So there's a lot of really strong currents and there's also a lot of crazy weather that isn't, they don't, I don't know what it is, but the weather's never really predicted correctly. Right. <laughs> we have found very good, very good um, it doesn't really line up with what we, we get. Uh, there's also a lot of like fads in the water here. So right. fishing attract, fish attracting devices. So they're just big bamboo platforms pretty much that are anchored in ridiculously deep water and just floating around and they're everywhere. So sailing at night over here is a bit of a nightmare. Oh, You've wow. Got You've got to be on watch, don't you? Yeah, like a mind field. Pretty crazy, but... Okay, that was Catalpa's story, episode number 24. Uh, thanks again for being here, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this short uh, compilation of stories. Again, hit me up. I'd love to hear uh, what other ideas, topics, themes you'd love to hear about. Uh, I think my next one might be just gnarly women of the water. I got a bunch of stories from women all over the world doing cool stuff, but... But do hit me up. Let me know what you think. Thanks again for being here, supporting the podcast and everything, and uh, get out in the water. All right. See you next time.